Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from the book of Esther how King Ahasuerus' edict granted the Jewish people the ability to stand for their life, destroy and slay those that oppose them, and take their spoil. Download this message for free at friendshipwithgod.org, or you can download it for free on iTunes. You can also, with your iPhone, iPad, Android, or smart device, navigate to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. And there at our website, you'll find information on how to add the Friendship with God podcast app on your smart device, all for free. As we finish this teaching on Esther today for this week, next Thursday and Friday will be our last lesson and teaching study from the book of Esther. So here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching from the book of Esther. Just as those Jewish people in Persia were grateful to those Gentiles who helped them, just as those Jewish people knew that they could not be saved without those Gentiles, we are grateful to the believers who brought us the gospel. Help is the right word. Help is what the evangelist does. The evangelist does not save anyone. The evangelist does not save a lost person. God saves them. But the evangelist helps the lost person to be saved. And that's what Paul meant when he spoke about what he could do for the Jewish people to be saved in Romans eleven fourteen, He said, if by any means, speaking about the Jewish people, he said, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them, or to jealousy them, which are the, my flesh, and I might save some of them. Paul didn't mean that he was literally going to save them, but that he would help them to be saved. And that's what Paul meant when he spoke about the same thing, about Gentile believers to be saved. He said that in 1 Corinthians 9.22. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. To the strong, it says, I have made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. He didn't mean that he was going to save them literally, but he would help them to be saved. That's why when Paul was being directed to come into Macedonia and bring them the knowledge of God so that they could be saved, Paul saw this dream in which he said in Acts 16.9, And a vision appeared to Paul in that night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. Just like those Jewish people in Persia who needed for their lives to be preserved, and their lives were preserved because those Gentiles helped them. So the man of Macedonia, representing the people of Macedonia, begged Paul, I pray thee, begged Paul and said, come over into Macedonia and help us. And the word that man used is the same word. That word that man used there in Macedonia is the same word that's used to describe those Gentiles, what they did to preserve the life of the Jewish people. They helped them. And because those Gentiles helped the Jewish people, their lives were preserved. And because Paul decided to go into Macedonia, the Macedonians Macedonians were helped and their lives were preserved for eternity. That's what we're talking about in both cases. Help so that life can be preserved. Gentiles, believing Gentiles, helping lost Jewish people to preserve their lives. Believing Paul, helping Macedonians so that Macedonians could have their lives preserved. That's what we're talking about. Evangelists like you and I, helping the lost to preserve life. It doesn't matter what you call it. You call it evangelism. You call it preaching the gospel. You call it spreading the gospel. You call it telling the good news. You say you're soul winning. You say you're making converts. You say you're sharing your faith. You say you're witnessing. It's all the same. And it all means doing what those Gentiles did for the Jewish people in Persia. They helped them to preserve their lives. That's what all those Gentiles did. They helped those Jewish people in Persia to preserve their lives. It's not written 
that those Gentiles fought for those Jewish people in Persia. Those Jewish people in Persia had to fight their own battles. But those Gentiles helped them and helped the Jewish people so their lives could be preserved. So that's a very important point, that just as those powerful Gentiles did not actually fight, they didn't fight with the Jewish people, but they helped them fight. And so it's true. For every believer with a lost person, that believer can only help, and he has to help, but all he can do is help, but only help that lost person to fight his own battle into the eternal preservation of his life, which is what salvation is. That believer can help that lost person by walking him through the sinner's prayer into eternal life. That believer cannot pray the sinner's prayer for that lost person. That's a prayer. That's a battle that that lost person has to fight himself. And like those Gentiles in Persia, the believer can only help. That's why Paul says in Romans 11:4 that he would help lost Jewish people by whatever he could think of, making them jealous, talking about the eternal life that he has, talking about that he's not afraid of the grave, talking about that he's got a future beyond life, make them jealous, talk about the peace that he has. He said he'll do that if that's what it means to help. And the Gentiles, he said, I'll be made all things to all men so that I can help them. Help is all we can do as believers for the lost. And help is what we need to do. And those Gentiles help those Jewish people in Persia, maybe by supplying with arms, maybe by supplying them with intelligence about the army. We don't know. But those Gentiles knew when to stop and when to pull back and when to let the Jewish people fight their own battle. They helped in every way they could, but they only helped And they didn't fight the battle. Why did the Jewish people have to fight the battle? Why did they have to fight it alone? Why couldn't the Gentiles fight for the Jewish people? Why did the Gentiles have to pull back from actually fighting and only help? Because of the text of the edict, which which every word is important. Every word. This reminds me, when we talk about this, talk about the law, the edict, every word. It reminds me of of the one too many times in the past 10 years that we've been in patent court either in the U.S. Patent Court or the European Patent Court or the Japanese Patent Court. As a matter of fact, we're right now fighting in the Japanese Patent Court trying to defend one of our patents, which is under attack for validity. So we have a lot of unfortunate experience in patent courts. But, you know, so there's a lot of emotion, a lot of drama, and, uh, you know, well, you can't say that, but anyway. But once you remove yourself from the emotional drama of it all, patent law is very interesting. What makes it so interesting is to see the rule of law operating in the patent courts. And whether it's in the U.S. or it's in Europe or it's in Japan, there's one common denominator in court, and that's that the words of the law are very, very important. When it says this phrase, the letter of the law, you never see that so illuminated as when you're in court in general, in which we've been for the last 10 years in various courts, and we've poured over doing the same thing, whether it's in Europe, Japan, or the U.S. You pour over every word that's in the law for that region. And we study every word of the law to see where, and see if we're in compliance with that law. Or if we're not in compliance, then what are we going to do? And we studied every word of the law to argue our position in court based on the words of the law. We sit up there, we argue about words. We argue words. This word is in the law. This word means this. this, way, this therefore, we're right. And our opponents do the same thing. And they say, study every word. And, and it's not only in court, it's also at Scanabodies. We have a whole department in our company called Compliance. And all they do is study words. So if you want a job studying words, join the Compliance Group. They study the words of the laws of the land. 
And they study the words of the FDA law, and they study the words of the Koseisho, Japanese law, and they study the words of Kofi Priest, Mexican law, and other laws, and words of the European Union. And as we study those words and those laws, we ask ourselves the question, do our practices comply with those words? Because it's all about the laws, and the laws are all about words. And you may have seen uh, Scanabize Biologics over on, in El Cajon Boulevard on Broadway. It's our human plasma collection center. And, and um, Tuesday, August 13th, was a very important day for us because after three years of arguing and waiting, we finally received our FDA license for that facility. You can hold your applause. <laughs> but that meant that for three years, we read the words of the FDA law on plasma collection. And for three years, we wrote procedures and we operated at a skeleton level in accordance with the words of the law. And the FDA inspectors came, and they inspected to see if we were. And what did they come? The FDA inspectors come, and they've got the law. And they're looking up the law. And they don't give their opinions. They're just the law, just the words of the law. It was a great day when they sent us the letter, and they said, you're in compliance. You know what this book is? This is the words of God's law. This is the words of God's law. Just like the FDA has the words of the FDA law, U.S. Patent Court has the words of their law, Japanese Patent Court has the words of their law, European Patent Court in Munich has the words of their laws, we have the words of God's law. And everywhere, just as everywhere, people are studying the words of the law to see if they're in compliance. This is all about law, and it's all about every word's important, and one word in a law can determine the whole meaning of the law. And that's why every word has to be carefully studied to see what it means. And that's why every word in this book has to be carefully studied to see what it means, because it's very important. And just as every word in those laws of those lands is studied to understand the law, that's why we study every word so carefully in the Bible. That's why today we're spending so much time on one word in this book, help, in case you forgot what the message was about. <laughs> That's why when we study the book of Genesis, sometimes we'll park and we'll drill down on one word, just like in court, and ask the question, how does this one word give the meaning to what's being said here? Because every word in God's law is important. That's why God told Joshua to act like a lawyer and be absorbed. He told him, he said, be absorbed with this book. And he said it this way in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. And because one word, one word can change the whole meaning of a law, that's why the Lord Jesus Christ told us to make our lives to be about individual words that are in this book individual words and we see those individual words when when we look at a, a scripture like deuteronomy 8 3 and he humbled thee and suffered thee to hungry hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knowest not neither thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the lord doth man live god doesn't waste words why well, waste words god doesn't waste words we live by this word you know, chicks in a nest. I like to watch, if you ever get a chance to watch chicks in a nest. When, you know, chicks in a nest. They're so helpless, and they can't get their own food. And so they're dependent on the mother bird, as you know. Bring them those delicious worms and grubs that she's gathered for them. And when the mother bird returns, 
for those chicks, the chicks to open their mouths and they open their mouths wide in the direction of the mother bird and they chirp their head off. And the mother bird deposits the worms and the grubs right into the mouths. It's a mouth-to-mouth affair. It's really something. Into the mouth of those baby birds. And we can imagine the mother bird flying all around looking for food. And as she's away from the nest, her heart is really back at the nest. And the mother bird is thinking about her chicks and how hungry they are. And and she wants to feed them. And they need to be fed by her. And she knows that. And then the mother bird sees this worm like the birds can do. And the mother bird dives down. And as she's diving down to get that worm, she's thinking to herself, oh, my chicks are going to love this worm. (laughs) And all the way back, as she's flying back with that worm, she thinks of how her chicks are going to love that worm. She's just collected, and how she's going to, she's thinking in her process of her little mind, how she's going to deliver the right to her mouths. And when the chicks see the mother bird approach, the anticipation builds, and they chirp louder, and they wonder, what's she going to bring us, a worm or a grub? <laughs> and she delivers from her mouth, right into their mouth, and those little chicks live by every worm that proceeds out of the mouth of the mother bird. (laughs) And that picture is exactly the picture of God wants us to understand of how it's all about the individual words in this book. And it's God. And he says he might make you to understand man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And just as the mother bird finds that nice worm in the field and anticipates how happy the little chicks are going to be with it, so God selects the individual scriptures for us out of this word. And he anticipates with happiness how a particular verse is going to meet our need. And just as those little chicks anticipate what a good meal's coming, When their mother bird is approaching the nest, so we anticipate when we come to our morning quiet time with God, when we go to our Bible study, when we come to Sunday school class, when we come to a main service, something good is about to happen. Something good is about to arrive. And just as the mother bird is saying in her approach, little chicks, open your mouth wide (laughs) because I didn't come back here with nothing. Then you get ready to receive the good food I've gathered up for you. And so God says to us in Psalm 81.10, the Lord, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open my mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, play along a little bit. Let's just imagine that in a particular nest of the live little birds, chicks there, that there are three dead little birds in this nest. I know it's gruesome, but just, anyway, picture it. And we want to find out what happened to those three dead birds. So we set out to interview the live little chicks. And we find out what happened. We start by pointing to the one dead bird, and we say, what happened? So what's up with that bird? What happened to that bird? And the other chicks say, oh, that one, he was a pessimistic bird. (laughs) He said he refused to open his mouth when our mother bird came back because he didn't really believe that she had anything for him that he wanted. He was pessimistic. And so he died because he didn't open his mouth. He frustrated our mother bird. And the mother bird would say to him, what's the matter with you? Don't you believe that I brought something good for you? But he wouldn't listen, so he died. And then we come along, and we go to the, the point to the second little dead bird. We ask the live chicks, okay, so what's happened to this little bird, this little dead bird? And the other chicks said, oh, he, him, he was a proud, he was a proud bird. He refused to open his mouth when our mother bird came back because he said, no one's going to feed me. I could feed myself. Just look at how humiliating it is. I mean, I look at you. It's so, you don't realize how humiliating you look with your mouth wide open and yelling for your mother to feed you. I'm not going to humiliate myself. I'll get my own food. I don't need my mother. I don't need anybody else. He was so proud he died because he didn't open his mouth 
He didn't open his mouth, and he frustrated our mother bird, and he would say, and she would just look at him, and she would say, what's the matter with you? Don't you want to live? Are you so proud that you'd rather die than humble yourself? But he didn't listen, so he's dead. And if we went to the live birds and we pointed to the third little bird, dead bird, and that's going to say, well, what happened to that bird? And the little chicks would say, oh, he was the know-it-all bird. He was the know-it-all bird. He was the oldest bird in the nest. And he refused to open his mouth when our mother bird came back because he said, worms and grubs again? I'm tired of worms and grubs. He said, they're not exciting. They're not thrilling. They're nothing new. I want something new. I'm not going to open my mouth unless there's something really new that's brought back. I know it all. And so he died because he didn't open his mouth. He didn't open his mouth when the mother returned because she knew. She brought frack for him food, but he said, no, he wasn't going to do that. So he frustrated the mother, and the mother said to him, what's the matter with you? Don't you want to live? That's what you need to live. I know, I know you've eaten this before, but you need to eat it again. And he wouldn't listen, so he died. And a person is like the pessimistic bird. When he lets himself sink deep into sadness, deep into depression, and he fails to believe that there's any hope in God for his soul. And he won't believe that God can help him. And a person is like the little proud bird when he says that he's self-sufficient and the only helping hands he needs are at the end of his arms. And he won't be found on his knees calling out to God. And a person is like the know-it-all bird if he comes to his quiet time, comes to Bible study, comes to Sunday school, comes to church without any sense of anticipation, without his mouth being open to receive from God because he knows the Bible. He knows all the sermons. He's heard all the sermons, heard all the Bible lessons. And unless he hears something new and exciting, he's just not interested. The point is, is that every word in this book has been given to us by the Lord our God as our food and God as our mother bird and we're the chicks And we need to open our mouth wide so he can fill us. And we have to study every word because every word is very, very important. Which brings us back to our lesson in Esther. Which gets back to the question, why did the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone have to fight? Why couldn't the Gentiles fight for the Jewish people? Why do those Gentiles have to back off and actually let them fight? Because of the words of the actual text was very, very important. The king's edict. The king's edict said explicitly in Esther 8, 10 through 13. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring, sent letters by posts on horseback, riders, mules, camels, young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews, here's the text, which were in every city, number one, to gather themselves together, number two, to stand for their lives, number three, to destroy Number four, to slay. Number five, to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women. And number six, to take their spoil of them for a prey upon one day, etc., etc. That's the text. The edict, the text of the edict clearly gave just the Jewish people. Only the Jewish people had the right to gather themselves and they had the right to stand for their lives, to destroy, to slay, etc. It gave just the Jewish people that to do that to the anti-Semites who would assault them. It gave them that. It did not give any Gentile the right to assemble a fight. Only the Jewish people could do it. That's so important because the king of heaven has written an edict and he's made it so very clear that only a lost sinner can fight and pray his way into heaven by confessing that he's a sinner, by claiming that Jesus is his Lord. No one else can do that for him. And when a believer helps a sinner to repeat the sinner's prayer, God and the angels are not listening to the believer. They're listening to the sinner. And they're asking the question, is the sinner really praying that? Is he sincere? Is he really repentful? Because the king of heaven has decreed in his edict that the believer can only help, but he has to stop short because the sinner has to do business with God. And for the believer to do anything more 
then help is to be being overly pushy, overly persuasive, the point of disregarding and not obeying the edict from the king of heaven, which says that only the sinner can pray his way into heaven. No one else can do it. And why can no one else do it for him? Because the edict of the king of heaven is written in John 1, 12 through 13, which says, here's the edict, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's God's edict in John 1, 12 through 13. And the wording, each word, very important. Every word, very important. Each person, individually, alone, before God, must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Each person, individually, alone, must do that because the words of the edict say that. Each person individually alone must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name, the Lord, he is God. Jesus, God saves through him. Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the sent one. He must believe that. And if he does, then God says, I crown you with the title of being one of the sons of God. I give you a new birth, not from a bloodline, not from the will of flesh, not because of the impulse of people, but I crown you not from the will of man, but of God. Not from where babies normally come from, but the new birth comes from the will of God. That all happens. That's part of God's edict. That's his edict. I remember in 1970 when I was still lost, before I was saved, and a dear couple from Landmark Baptist Church visited our little studio apartment in Cincinnati on River Road. Now River Road's a posh place. Then it was very impoverished. And they sat on our couch and they lovingly told me that my wife was going to heaven and I was going to hell. Very nicely the way they told it. And, uh, but it could all change. And I remember how belligerent I was and how obnoxious I was to them. And I gave them no indication at all that I was interested. But inside, they couldn't see, but there was a great struggle going on inside of Mr. Tom. And I couldn't get their words out of my mind. And I'm grateful for how they brought the gospel to me in my need. That couple helped me to be saved. And it breaks my heart to this day that I have no way to find them and no way to tell them. And it breaks my heart that they left probably believing that was a waste of time. There is no hope for him to be saved. But I'm grateful for how they continued, for God's sake, and to help me. And as soon as I get to heaven, don't bother me because I'm going to go spend time trying to find out where they are. Now, and just in conclusion here, how do we help? How do we as believers help others? I'm just going to point out two ways. First, we help others, as it says in Acts 2, Acts 8, 26 or 35, where it speaks about Philip, and he was put into this desert, and here came the chariot, and here was the Ethiopian, and he got close to the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian was reading in the prophet Isaiah, and he didn't understand what he was reading about. And so Philip said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I, except some man should guide me, except some man should help me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture we read was that he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh thou the prophet this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him, to him Jesus Boy, what a challenge that is. Could you do that? I ask myself, could I do that? If someone pointed any scripture in the Bible, could you start there and go to Jesus? That's something. 
He began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. We help the lost by directing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I always try to use and say the full name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because I'm directing myself, others, everyone to the Lord Jesus Christ. We help the lost by beginning at any scripture and preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. The second way we help the lost is found in, in Romans 10.1, where Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We help the lost by praying for the lost. The lost cannot be heard in prayer. The lost have no access to God. Why? Because it says in Isaiah 59, Your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. Your sins have hid his faith from you, and he will not hear. But we, our iniquities have been forgiven, so we are heard by God. And we have access, as it says in Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace. We help the lost when we use the access that we have. When we use the telephone lines that are open, we've got the red phones to God. And we help the lost who don't have it when we pray to God for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how, Lord, these Gentiles help the Jews and preserve their lives. Lord, it's a challenge to us this morning, and we pray that you would, Lord, just help us that we might help those in need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Our resource for this month from Tom Cantor is a teaching on the Passover. It's a powerful two-disc DVD set on the personal relevance of the Passover from Exodus chapter 12 and Isaiah 53. It's a great gift to give to a Christian or an unbeliever or even a Jewish person at Easter and Passover time. And it's yours for a donation of $20 or more. We'll send you this powerful DVD teaching from Tom Cantor. 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Again, for a donation of $20 or more, or you can go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org to our online bookstore. 1-800-247-3051. Thanks and join us next week.